Hi, everybody. This is your cousin, Brucey. And you know, you're listening to the Fab Four Free For All with Mitch Axelrod, Rob Leonard, and Tony Traguato. Welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All, uh, a podcast or what we like to call a, a talk show about the Beatles. My name is Rob Leonard, and joining me, of course, today is Mitch Axelrod. Hey, folks. And, of course, Tony Truguardo. Hi, folks. And today we have a special guest who's basically done everything in radio. He's been a top-rated disc jockey. He's owned radio stations. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall. No, he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you're in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. He is also in the Long Island Music Hall of Fame for our friend Tony, who used to work there. And he's currently on WABC Radio every Saturday, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Hello, Cousin Brucey. How are you? I am, uh, I think, terrific. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. During this uh, this nightmare that we're going through, uh, as I say, every day is Tuesday. So right. when you wake up on Tuesday, you're not that sure. So I look in the mirror and I say, eh, I'll get through this one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. Right. Well, that's that's <laughs> true. Um, yeah, cousin. For those who maybe don't know who you are, I mean, you were dirty dancing. We should say uh, you're you've done television, you've done radio, you've author. done movies. You're an author. You've written how many books? I I saw five, and then I saw three. You've written an autobiography. I know that. Um, is it five or three? I <laughs> know uh, this. Well, I did three. See, three books. Let me think. One, two, three books. Three publishers. Okay. Right. Okay. One in uh, one being considered now, but I don't know if I want to go through that again. You know, writing a book. Let me interrupt you. Writing a book is donating one year at least of your life, right, to something that you know generally is is worthwhile art wise. But then you start thinking about. You know, after when we went through this uh, with this COVID thing, you just sort of. Uh, you get very covetous of your time. So I don't know. I'll see. It might be four or five books. I don't know. But right now, three is enough. I'm happy. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Um, let's let's go back to the beginning. Um, back in 1963. Now, we know uh, WABC, according to their published charts, uh, first added, I want to hold your hand, uh, the week ending uh, December 31st, 1963. Can you go a, a month or two before that to say what was going on in the world of music and in the radio also, because it, it seems like a whole different time. There's definitely that, that foot in the, not foot in the sand, line in the sand from when the Beatles arrived and, and the music before. Not that the music before it was bad, but there is a definite line in the sand. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's really, uh, thanks to uh, the boys in England and these four mop, pop, mop tops, as we used to call them, um, the music industry was getting kind of tired at this time that you're referring to, say, a couple months before, a couple of years before. Everything was the same. We were in corporate doldrums, as we all unfortunately have to go through once in a while. And uh, nothing was happening. And then suddenly over in Europe, we're watching these uh, events happening in different countries with riots about these four lads from England. And uh, people are going wild. We needed something desperately to bring bring back the American music industry. It was really getting very, very tired. And we had, you know, we had the Beach Boys, we had some of the others, but they needed a little pick-me-up too. Motown needed a pick-me-up. So nothing was happening. And suddenly 
this thing explodes. I'll give you a, a great example of, of uh, say, a couple weeks before the Beatles arrived at uh, Idle, Idlewild Airport, before they called it JFK. I was there for that, too, for that very famous uh, a press conference. But let me give you a little, this is kind of a fun example, but it's really accurate. I'm on the air, and I'm taking requests, as I do to this very day, and I get a call from, hey, uh, Brucey, uh, this is uh, Joey from uh, Grand Concourse in the Bronx. Would you... Uh, <laughs> Play a record for me and my girl, Susie. She loves you so much. How about something by the, uh, as you call them, Brucey, the Brothers Everly, huh? You're a good guy, Brucey. We love you. Hang up. I play uh, Wake Up Little Susie for them, for his girlfriend, Susie. And uh, two weeks later, now, during that two-week period, all hell broke loose uh, with the music industry. Money was poured into these four lads called the Beatles, and you couldn't even go into a bathroom without seeing a sticker of Paul or John or you know or George. They they plastered us all over the place. Took them a couple of weeks. They put a huge amount of money in. Now that night on the air, the same call comes in, and this is what happens. And this is how the how the Beatles affected our lives sociologically. Here, hi, this is cousin Bruce. Hello. Is this uh, His Majesty Brucey? This is Sir John of the Bronx Shire in the Shire of Bronxville. <laughs> Would you be playing a record for Mimi Bird, Lady Suzanne? We'd love to by the Beatles. Thank you very much, Your Lordship. We love you. <laughs> now, what that showed, we laughed at that, but very honestly, it was not laughing because they affected not only our hairstyle, our way we, we dressed, Right, but they affected the language, the King's English, it's called it. Right, uh, suddenly everybody was speaking um, with a clipped tongue. They were became everybody became Anglophiles. Mm -hmm. They wanted a little piece of this. Although you listen to the Beatles records, you really, if you unless you really had a uh, really listen carefully with an acute ear, you couldn't really tell if they were British. No, yeah. isn't that amazing? When people sing, they lose that accent, yeah. and when they talk a little bit, you hear it again. But everybody talked to me with a little bit of a, your majesty, you know, Lord Sir Brucey. I even did it, right? Uh, it was an amazing thing, those two weeks. And then, of course, all hell developed. So by the time they came here on flight, what was it, 101, I think it was, Pan Am 101, when John or Paul, I think, looked down and said, you know, look, the streets look like they're covered with diamonds. They had the reflection of some of the sidewalks of New York with cement. And he, they were all excited about coming here because with all their success in Europe, nothing was to happen until they came here to New York and eventually the rest of the United States. This is where the money lies. Give me the money. <laughs> you know, the Beatles, we got to remember one thing. The Lord didn't say, thou have been wonderful people. I shall give thee a group to make you happy. It didn't come <laughs> from above. It came from here. It came from money. It came from very careful planning. Uh, uh, the, the people over the record industry, British and American, put a tremendous amount of money behind promoting the Beatles. So by the time they came over here, they were part of the English language. They were part of almost part of our DNA. Not yet. I know, notice I mentioned the word DNA because very honestly, and this I know for a fact, I know this, this is not a theory. The Beatles are more than music were more than music. After about six months, they became part of our sociological structure. 
Um, they became part of our, like I say, DNA. They became part of our culture. Now, once you surpass just singing a couple songs on a stage, you have something very special. Now, here we are, guys, talking about these four lads from Liverpool today. How many years later? Right. Almost 60. Now, just think about it. that. I don't believe has ever been done before. Now, maybe with a couple opera singers from the uh, Marconi's day, right? Uh, perhaps, but not like this. Not like they were still alive today. We feel their flesh and blood. Uh, young people listen to a Beatle record today. They feel like they know them. Yeah. They're part of uh, they're part of this whole revolution in music. They fit in with their hip hop and their R and B and their rock. Right? Somehow the Beatles have formed a niche in our society. Young and of course older, we own them. So I guess a lot of us are a little a little upset. <laughs> that the young people are enjoying the Beatles too. But why not? Think about what the Beatles had way ahead of their times, not only aesthetically, but technologically. I mean, Paul McCartney, I don't think a day went by where he didn't start experimenting with something with Sir George. Aesthetically, well, listen, the Lord gave them some kind of a, a, gorgeous, a gorgeous talent, and they were able to explore it. These four we reasonably poor boys came from poor families in Liverpool without any experience whatsoever, except in their little 20 miles, 20 square mile uh, world. And here they were able to express it in music. How does that happen? This is not normal, right? Absolutely not normal. So they were able to express this lifestyle and they were able to reach all of us. And boy, did they reach us. Yeah, they did. You know, speaking about expression, can you tell your uh, your involvement with I want to hold your hand? Because I've read interviews where you, you talk about briefcases with handcuffs and, you know, and getting the song oh, played. Oh, OK. <laughs> so, you know, I was listening to you and I'm just saying, what do you mean by handcuffs? I didn't get into that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's this job as a teenager. Anyhow, that'll be in one of my next books. <laughs> you don't know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when the Beatles uh, first came out, I you know we used to have in those days what they call record promoters, fellas, record promoters. These guys would come up and they'd bring up you know a satchel of records and leave us a half a dozen, hoping that we'd play them on WABC before we became WA Beatles. Well, one day you know I'm following the Beatles. This happened two years before they broke loose. I'm following them on Swan and VJ, and I'm getting you know count what these bootleg records and they sound pretty good. But I'm but I'm going to tell you something that I don't admit too freely, but uh, we're all cousins, so I can. Uh, as much of a genius as I think I was, I, I kept thinking when I heard these early records, what is it? What are these upstarts? How dare they? Take our rock and roll idiom. How dare they uh, imitate Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers and Jerry Lee Lewis and make it English? What are they? Are they crazy? Well, mm-hmm. I know we needed them very badly. <clears throat> badly in those days. Uh, so I, I got a couple calls and they said, uh, Cousin Brucey, tonight, this is when they first came over after they had that famous uh, a press conference in Ottawa, which was a riot. And if you want, we can talk about that because that was kind of a my first uh, first personal impression of the Beatles and how they were kind of wise guys, but they were scared. That's what it was. So anyway, I get this call and they said, listen, at nine o'clock tonight, 
we're going to send somebody up our uh, our record promotion man, who you know, I forgot his name, and he's going to have an acetate with the Beatles. I want it's called "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Nobody's played it yet. You cannot have it. Well, you can have it. They'll be up there a few minutes before, but you can't play it till nine o'clock. That is the deal. Will you do that? I said absolutely. So of course. All heck broke loose at the station. We were always going to get the very first major Beatle release. Now, WABC radio, AM radio at that time, you know, today with what we're doing, what you're doing, what I'm doing, uh, there's no such thing as local radio anymore. I mean, the Internet's involved, streaming, uh, broadcast, you name it. Who knows what's going on out there? I, I listen to a thing called, uh, I think, Radio Garden. I can listen to any station anywhere in the world by pushing my finger on a map. I yep. mean, and, and digital sounds called Radio Garden. It's, I think the listeners should look at this too. So at, at nine o'clock, quarter to nine, I get the, my producer comes over and says, there's some people who want to see you. Well, three guys came up. Two of them were armed security guards. One of them had on his right wrist, they, you know, these are things you never forget. Right wrist, handcuffed, to a attache case. The other one was watching him, who had the key. The other guy that came up was the was the promotion man. And they said, Bruce, at approximately five minutes from around nine o'clock, we're going to unlock this, uh, this attache case, and we're going to have you an acetate of a song by these Beatles. You ever hear of them? I said, yes, I did. I heard of the Beatles. And now, uh, obviously, we were promoting that we were going to have a big surprise. We weren't allowed to tell anybody what it was, but we promoted that we we're going to have a big surprise about the Beatles exclusively. So at about five minutes before nine o'clock, one of the guards goes over to the security man, unlocks uh, um, uh, with a key, takes the handcuff off, they open the attache, and they hand me this black shellac. Now, this might seem impossible to you, but that when he took that black shellac out, it glowed. <laughs> I swear. It's like the end of Raiders of the purple, Lost Ark. <laughs> purple glow, then it turned blue and yellow and red. I don't want to touch it. I thought that was mana or something, right? <laughs> Finally, I get the nerve and I touch this thing and I feel warmth in my hands. <laughs> Well, we slap it on, right? We slap it on. Now, at this time, you got to understand, WABC Radio, about 9 o'clock, with the ionosphere, if you remember your uh, earth science, you remember the ionosphere goes up pretty nicely around this time. And AM radio bounces off this ionospherical mm-hmm. layer, and the bounce goes back to earth, and phew, I was reaching 40 states. That's how I got a national image before, podcasting, streaming, satellite radio, you name it, you know. But this radio station had the capacity of reaching all over the country. Well, we knew that. And uh, there was one thing we didn't think about. So I put this record on. Now, needless to say, I played it almost eight, I think eight times that night. Right? I want to hold your hand. It was pretty obvious what was going to happen. But while that was happening, because of the power of WABC at that time, the local radio stations all over the country who were going Beatle crazy too from their listeners recorded what I was playing. Now, <laughs> some of the recordings were not great, but didn't matter. Didn't matter. They had an exclusive copy of a, a Beatles record that was going to be released the next day. Well, needless to say, after we played it like eight times, everybody was going nuts. The next day we realized at a meeting, 
that we had to do something to stop people from copying our exclusive records. Sure. It was WABC, which was to become WAB Beatles in a couple of days, uh, had to protect itself, had to have an insurance policy. So this is what happened. Every 15 or 20 seconds in a new Beatle record, I want to hold your ex exclusive, exclusive, custom receipt, exclusive, <laughs> WABC, exclusive, bah, bah, bah. and then the record would continue. 20 seconds later, the same thing happened. So this stopped people pretty nicely in their tracks. That was the battle of the Beatle broadcasters. That's and how that happened. And when how many people? Happened, there was a guard with a, an armed guard with a handcuff giving me that record. Is that weird? That how many people were disappointed? Dramatic. How many people were disappointed when they got the 45 home and in the middle of it, it didn't say exclusive, exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, you, um, you know, you were there before, obviously, you know, as you talked about before the Beatles thing hit really big, we hear so often about the older artists who uh, were resentful toward the Beatles. And yet, you know, as you said, the music industry needed them. They, they brought, they brought us back to Motown. They, you know, Smokey Robinson years later talked about how great it was, uh, what the Beatles did for him. So how did you, as someone who, who, was connected to and related to some of these older artists, you know, how did you feel when the, when the conversion happened at WA Beatles C, because you seem to have always maintained that, that connection. The artists still always love and respect you. Everybody that came before the Beatles that knows you, Dion, everybody like that, you know, um, how did you sort of keep your, keep your, your balance with that? Well, that's a good question because I really didn't, honestly, I wish I could say I realized what was happening, right? I knew if you look at a percentage, I knew like 30 percent something was going on here. Right, The 70 percent that wasn't I was completely confused. And I was a little angry that it's, if these these four guys from England, these mop tops were coming and destroying our music industry. Now, I didn't realize, of course, they weren't destroying it. They were rebuilding it yeah. because. Uh, all, and you're right. All these artists, these uh, artists who, by the way, were not old at that time. Right. We were all wearing younger men's clothing, well, right. albeit sometimes even Beatle clothing, um, were pretty upset because, you know, their livelihood was being affected. So many people on the air to this day will tell me they came back from the army or they came back. They couldn't get a record sold. They came back into the business because you had to have a British accent. And if you weren't English at that time, you were really screwed. Right? Mm -hmm. But so many people have told me that none of us really realize the importance of this rebuilding process. The American music industry was really getting oh, 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 very sleepy and nothing exciting was happening. Meanwhile, the audience, here's the difference. We weren't growing but the audience was growing. The audience wanted something different. They wanted something new. They wanted to be refreshed, revitalized. Getting tired hearing the same production from the, the American music industry. So here was an opportunity of something brand new and fresh. Mm. Uh, the Beatles didn't have all the answers at this time. None of the British groups did, but they certainly were there and they certainly did open the avenue and open a new cog railway to show us what the heck to do. And they did. And then eventually we all joined forces and realized that a new day was coming. Right. Right. Um, well, put. Percy, I have a question. Uh, first of all, I, I forgot to mention this in the intro. There are two disc jockey, American disc jockeys who were mentioned in the Beatles anthology book. 
Uh, one is you, and the other is uh, Murray the K. Um, Murray hooked himself up fast to the Beatles. Um, did he deserve all the credit he des- uh, gave to himself? <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to watch this. There's two pieces of Cousin Brucey here that we have to consider. There's the professional Brucey and the prof- the personal Brucey, right? I'm going to put the... Uh, I'll give you a I'll give you a little personal one, but I'm going to keep that very very low because it's not important. The the professional Brucey was the important part of this. Personally, I got involved with Murray at WINS. He took my job. I was on the air from seven to ten. He decided he wanted it. I was a kid. I was in my twenties. I had no way of really protecting myself. And he got a hold of the uh, sales manager. And they did a job on me. So I wound up with 10 to midnight, which just turned out to be fine. Murray took my job. So, and, and he was, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm going to leave it this way, because, you know, I was taught by my mom and dad, if you don't have anything nice to say, shut your mouth. Right? <laughs> shut your mouth, boy. Right? <laughs> and it's very true. Uh, he was not a nice man. Okay, I'm leaving at that. Now, uh, the question, Rob, did he deserve being what they called, he called himself, the fifth beetle. Right. Starts with a B and ends with an S. That's <laughs> See, I'm a broadcaster. I still can't say these words. Even though you can, even though we can today. Well, look, look, he was a promoter. Uh, giving him credit, he was an innovator. He was very different, which I have always held very important. That's, that's why I'm still around. When you are different, you have something to offer, it works. Murray had something different with his abes and kimasawasawas, and, and he did all kinds of things. He was exciting in those days. He was different, and he sounded different on the air. Uh, he did not deserve the accolades, and very honestly, the Beatles did not like this fifth Beatle thing. Matter of fact, if you remember, several fifth Beatles popped up all over the country. Right. Several DJs became the 5.1, 5. 5.2, 5. 5.3. <laughs> Beatles. Everybody was a, a Beatle. I never did that. I befriended them. I I worked with them. I used them for my benefit. I'm not going to get that picture behind you, Mitch. You know, yeah. Uh, that that is a rare picture because there's very very rare, a few times when they would sit together. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story about this photograph behind you. Uh, I'm looking at that now. Look at that tie I'm wearing. Oh my god! <laughs> what <were> they laughing? <laughs> Different times. Um, this was the only photograph, according to their official photographer. It's kind of interesting that all four of these boys were paying attention to one person at the same time. They mm-hmm. never paid attention. They were always wising off, carrying on, throwing pillows, you know, doing something to gain their own attention. But this picture here, if you will notice, every one of them are looking. Every one of them are looking at what we were doing there. And yeah. uh, Paul was, uh, he was got a little little nervous, so he got wised off a little bit at me. Uh, John, very as usual with me, was very serious and absolutely lovely. So that's a very important picture to, to uh, look at. It's historic, that picture. And, uh, I love that picture. That uh, picture was part of my, uh, probably be on my tombstone someday. <laughs> but, you know, there, you talked a little bit about Murray, but uh, there were other stations. Obviously, you know, you had WMCA with the good guys. You had WINS with Murray. 
And, you know, both of them actually took advantage of the Beatles uh, popularity uh, and their association. Murray had a record out called As It Happened. Uh, the, the good guys actually had their picture on the back of I Want to Hold Your Hand and Unlimited. You know, they did a contest. Did, did you or your station ever think about taking advantage of the association while you could? Because we didn't know they would last. Oh, W.A. Beatles C became right. W.A. Beatles number one. We had contests. We gave away a lot of money. Uh, we gave away tickets, of course. We had Beatle lookalike contests. We had all things like that. Uh, also, I was uh, given the opportunity when they were at Chase Stadium to host their show with Ed Sullivan, which is a great story. If you want to get into that, it's kind yeah, of a definitely. fun story in a moment. But uh, yes, the answer is yes, we took advantage of it. We did not become the fifth Beatles, though. <laughs> they did not like that. Right. We treated them with respect. And anytime they needed something, we were there for them. And of course, we were always after them, always. So we became part of their culture also. Yeah, and they had such a love for American music, too, that, you know, I mean, you guys as U.S. DJs, you represented in a way the American music that they loved so much. So that I'm sure was great for them as well. Well, you know, you have, I don't know if you've heard of my shows. I'm sure you have. Hi, oh, this yeah. is John. This is Paul. This is George. They were in a car. In those days, yep. we didn't have mobile cell phones or anything. But they were so happy when they came over here. They, they really wanted to thank me and WABC uh, for what they knew. They knew what was going on. They were told in England who was important to them. And in this market, WABC was the, was the winner. There's, there's no, no doubt that we came away being, you know, the, the fair-haired boys. Brucey, uh, one of the things about, um, you know, that picture that's behind Mitch, or the famous picture, is that WABC set up shop in the hotels where the Beatles stayed when they came to New York because they had the equipment to do a live remote. Um, can you just explain how much of an advantage that was to WABC? And, and I mean, all the interviews you did were in the hotel, so it wasn't like a press conference. So you had them on your own um, and you had the equipment to do it, which uh, some of the other stations did. So can you just explain that? Well, as- you know, first of all, WABC, you got to look at it. WABC is in a class by itself. You know, you, you know your radio history. You know what goes on with the spectrum. WABC, because of its power, just because of its sheer power, reaching <laughs> this three-quarters of this country almost. Uh, and now, of course, the power is unlimited. But in those days, we were so powerful that everyone knew that if a record was played on Cousin Brucey's show or, or anybody else's show preceding me or after me, the record would sell. It, became a, it was a very powerful entity. So people wanted to come on this radio station. So that was a no-brainer. That was easy. Uh, when the Beatles came over, WABC was their prime target, their prime media target. Anything that happened was given to us. They had to be very careful of that because, you know, let's face it, they couldn't just show complete, uh, complete. Uh, hey, Bruce, let's give Brucey this, let's give the WABC that. They had to be careful because they needed the other stations. But everything that happened with the Beatles – came to us first, sometime covertly, like I told you, uh, <laughs> sneaking records up and we're getting bootleg copies through channels. Um, but we did very, very well with that without having to become the fifth Beatles. And as I still hold that true. I, I, I never liked that. I never liked that whole concept. And I thought it was taken advantage very unprofessionally. 
You know, uh, great. Uh, there were great audio tapes of WABC. Uh, we were in there. I think it was the Plaza Hotel, and uh, every kid in those days would carry a little thing called a transistor radio. I don't know. You're, you're probably too young, Rob. Oh, no. <laughs> no, yeah. we know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're not that young. Those little things. You put almost, you know, little did we know what the transistor radio was going to become. That was a precursor of, huh, a piece of toast. Part of our <laughs> lives today, which babies in 50 years will be born within their right and behind their ear. Yeah. <laughs> What is that? Okay, that's an iPhone there, Bruce. Right. <laughs> well, let me tell you, we won't even need those in fifty, fifty to one hundred years. We'll be born with it. It's going to be part of a the bunch of theories of use and disuse. Now, remember that school. Uh, we're the Plaza Hotel. There's five, six thousand kids, most of them young females, across the street on Park Avenue near the Plaza. I think it was in Park Avenue, and. Uh, Dan Ingram, if I remember, called for a couple jingles. That is a famous recording, too. Then I called for some jingles. And every time we played WABC 77, which I still play on the air, right. these famous jingles, they're part of ours. Once again, DNA, there's those three letters. Uh, you'd hear outside through the walls of the Plaza Hotel, and 5,000 kids would be singing the jingles. I mean, <laughs> about this think about sociologically think about what that means to not only broadcasting what that means to humanity they would sing and they'd repeat if i'd say hey there comes paul he's by the he's by the uh the venetian blinds paul wave the venetian blinds of course i'd wave it <laughs> and you'd hear uh, screaming <laughs> so the reaction was amazing and media helped Build the Beatles without any doubt whatsoever, because very honestly, without radio, this message would not have gotten out. Absolutely and that's not. just the radio. Radio is so personal of all mass media guys. And I don't have to sell you on this. Of all mass media, radio is the most intimate. We are in bed with people. We're in cars with people. We take walks with people. Anywhere people go, we are there. So radio was with these people every moment. And all they wanted to do was be in chair space with the Beatles. So that little transistor radio was their key, was their door to being with the four boys. <laughs> you well, you alluded to uh, Shea Stadium. Um, first of all, you said you were co-announcer with Ed Sullivan. How did that come about? And, and I know you had discussed in the past about the Beatles and Brian and everybody really uh, worrying about safety. No, they, well, they were. Very, well, let's start with that part. They were very concerned. First of all, the... Uh, the European tours were very dangerous. They didn't really have the security they, they needed. And I don't think they realized what was happening. It was just developing. So by the time they came here, it was out of control. It was 80,000 bananas falling out of a car like Harry Chapin would talk about right eventually. It was dangerous. It was very serious. So I got a hold of well, that Sid Bernstein uh, was the... Uh, an entrepreneur, a promoter, uh, got the Beatles to come over the first time, a little ridiculously, because it was at Carnegie Hall. Now, you know, he made a deal with Brian Epstein, a Carnegie Hall for the Beatles, but I don't think uh, Bernstein realized the power of what was going to be happening. The, the tsunami never started at, until late, much later on. So he puts them in Carnegie Hall, and there's, what, 2,800 seats plus a couple in the bathrooms, you know, and that's a <laughs> 
and that's about it. But after a while, everybody realized that it had to be Shea Stadium, which was a great venue, albeit at this time probably too small. Probably mm-hmm. too small, right? Well, Sid Bernstein asked me if I would like – you know, I was very involved with the Beatles. They would call me, and they'd be involved, and the record companies, of course, would give us the – the exclusives on the you know, exclusive, exclusive on the very first Beatles thing. So he asked me if I'd like to host the uh, Shea Stadium concert with Ed Sullivan. Now, Ed Sullivan got involved. Now, how he got involved is kind of weird. He had no idea who the Beatles were. I don't even think when they were on his show, he knew who they were. I mean, <laughs> Sullivan was not a very aware man. He was kind of out of it. You know, like he, I remember he called, there's a great, there's a tape somewhere. I'm sure you guys probably have in your, in your annals somewhere of uh, uh, Ed Sullivan calling, uh, what the heck? Oh my God. I'm having a, a great uh, commentator, um, CBS. Uh, Walter Cronkite? Yeah. I'm sorry. There you go. I had a chance too early in the morning for me to think. Like Walter Cronkite. So he called this, this actually, and this is on, this is recorded, by the way. Hello, Walter. Yes, hello, Ed. How are you? Walter, did you ever hear of a group called the Beatles? Listen to this. At Sullivan asking Walter Cronkite. Right? <laughs> it was not the right one to ask either. Uh, <laughs> brilliant man, brilliant man. But, you know, they're not in yeah. Beatles or Cousin Brucey. So he's, Walter says, so this is fact. This is verbatim. Just a minute, Ed. Mary! <laughs> I believe that was his daughter's name. Did you ever hear of a group called the Beatles? He's yelling at And all you hear is, ah! Sullivan gets the Beatles on his show, right? For I don't know what they he paid him twenty eight hundred bucks or something. Mary is in the blood. She got paid because she got a seat in that audience at the Ed Sullivan Theater. (laughs) Nice. Discovered the Beatles, and you know, very nice show. Uh, So back to Shea Stadium, uh, he asked if I'd like to host him with Ed Sullivan. And I said, well, why, you know, why are you going to, it's son of them. What is, you know, because I was very protective of radio. And I know radio made the Beatles star. And he said, well, you know, they were on the Ed Sullivan show, which was true. I was outside that studio that day and it was like New Year's Eve. I didn't even go in the day the Beatles were there. So I said, sure, of course I want to. I uh, checked with WABC and uh, they are thrilled. Well, yeah. the, uh, we're there that day at Chase Stadium. Uh, and so many things, you know, while I'm talking, so many visions, uh, images are coming to my head about the Beatles' arrival at the Warwick. But that's another story. <laughs> Great stories. So we're at we're at Chase Stadium, and uh, all the hell is breaking loose. There's 65,000 kids, most of them young ladies, uh, just wanting to share space in this. So much commotion. There was so much electricity from that audience, you could feel it in your body. And I always like to tell people this. When I conjure this up and I think about it right now, I can feel in the cavity of my chest that electricity, mm. that feeling of it never leaves you. power. Oh, it was like, like, like the ocean. It was huge. There was no way of stopping it. Anything could have happened. Anything could have happened. Meanwhile, in the dugout, the boys are brought in, right? And dugout is full of all kinds of people, media people. I was there, so... Sullivan was there somewhere in a, in a corner, very hiding himself. He, he knew that he, you can feel the danger. I mean, it was danger. Uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon came over to me and they said, Cousin, John Lennon always called me Cousin, Cousin Brucey. 
is this going to be dangerous? And McCartney's eyes are wide open because you felt it in the deep. You, you ever get to a place where you feel danger, right? Like going to your mother-in-law's house. You know? Exactly. I was about to say that. <laughs> you know, that's the danger. Dangerous. I mean, really Waking scary. my wife in the morning. <laughs> Before coffee. You know, yes, exactly. We, we know. So uh, I said to them, uh, guys, there's no danger here. There don't, and of course, I took my fingers, and I remember this, and I put one my left hand behind <laughs> my back, crossed my fingers. Which means, you know, I, I'm lying. Yeah. I said, guys, there's no danger here. These people, this is love. You're feeling love. I mean, feeling love. Con Edison, which is our, for people not in the New York area, is our electrical utility company. They could have turned their turbines off, and there would have been enough power and juice to, to power New York City <laughs> from the energy from this audience. Sure. Picture that now. Now sure. I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. Feels, right? And I said, no, nah, there's no day. They just want to be here. Guys, they want to share space with you. And McCartney says, you sure this is not, you know, because they were ready to leave. They don't want, you know, they, with all their success and dangerous predicaments in Europe, they never, ever saw or felt the pressure that they had at Chase Stadium that day. So I said, no. All right. Now, everything's ready. The uh, other groups who I always felt sorry for, they had a warm-up. And the audience couldn't give a damn list who was on that stage. They were there for that one reason. Well, uh, Bernstein comes over to us and Bernstein and says, all right, guys, it's time. So Sullivan goes in front of me. I'm in back of Sullivan. And we start mounting the stairs, right? Uh, we had a little, uh, I think it was home base. There's a television. There's a video of this that I know they show on, on PBS a lot. And we're going up the steps. I'm, I'm, a, I'm like a, I'm a step and a half or so behind Sullivan. And Sullivan ch- turns around to me. And meanwhile, this cacophony, this pressure is mounting with people knowing that we are what we're doing. We're going to introduce the heroes of the day, these, these magnificent men with their white horses and chariots that we <laughs> waited for. Uh, Sullivan turns around and says something like this. Hey, Cousin Rusey. You think this is going to be dangerous? <laughs> I look at him, you know, his eyes are like bulgy. You might be a big bulgy eyes. I look at him up because I'm, I'm a step or so behind him. I said, and I, I'm thinking to myself, this guy, wow, what a stiff. What a square. You better be kidding. Because he's never had like this before. And I said to him, piece of cake, nothing. Don't worry about it. Nothing at all. It's a, it's a little danger. He goes up another step and he says, danger? Turns around and says, yeah, and he says, what do we do, Bruce? And I looked at him, and I knew I had him. And I said, Ed, pray. <laughs> pray? And he walked out the stairs. Well, postscript, that day, nothing really bad happened. All Thank these goodness. thousands and tens of thousands of people, everybody was there. Some people got bruises a little bit. Or I think most of the uh, the damage was done uh, psychologically, probably, <laughs> to these poor, poor kids. <laughs> Uh, after I introduced them, some of them I went down, the police asked me to escort them around the perimeter of uh, Shea Stadium. There was chicken wire up and, uh, you know, just barricades to keep them back. And there's great photographs of that, by the way. Kids, you can see them there. They're pre-orgasmic faces, you know, <laughs> it's wild. I mean, absolutely wild. Their eyes, and they're just, just there. They are uh, in, in just... Wow, they're just dreaming. They're just 
fantasizing. And I, I went around with the cops who were, by the way, the police, NYPD, and the uh, State Stadium security were exemplary. They were great. They were great with the kids. Because it's kind of funny, I always, always found out that later on that a lot of the police with me had kids in the audience, got them tickets. Right? <laughs> right. They were very careful. But they were very careful. Nobody got hurt. There were no really dangerous uh, uh, injuries that particular day. It was an amazing day. Now, they're all fainted. That was about it. Right. Well, the postscript to this, though, is I never heard the concert. I was right there. <laughs> never oh. heard it until maybe two years ago when someone sent me a tape, a recording of it. It was the first time I heard the live thing. In fact, very honestly, when after I talked to, to Paul, he never heard it either. They never heard it. They couldn't hear. No. You know, with the equipment of those days, it was a little different. They were very, very, there was such noise. And nobody really came to hear the music, guys, which brings me back to my original thesis. They didn't come to hear the music. What did they come there for, guys? What, what were they there for? The scream. The, the, oh, the experience. Well, well, develop that. Come on. Well, the whole experience. Yeah. yeah. They were there to share space. They wanted to share space. You know, when you are with somebody you love or you admire greatly, you'd like to be near them. You might not be part of it, but right. it's kind of nice to be in the room near them. You get something from that. The human experience lets you adapt a piece of that beautiful birthday cake. You get that. And that's what they're there for. They were there to share space. Well, needless to say, one of the great moments in my life was Shea Stadium, which lives with me very vividly. And I, well, I feel the same about you having you on the show, cousin Bruce. Just like absolutely. You know. um, Tony, are you up here next? To- no, I was. I was just going to oh. say, and and it's also, you know, I would imagine too, you know, Bruce. It was it was them culturally sharing something together. I mean, when had something on that scale? happened really with young people at that point absolutely right you not know. the young people to take it go even a step further with adults of course they haven't accepted the beatles at this time except within a year or two they invented them you know the adult world took them yeah. you gotta understand and you were right on the money tony uh we at that time if you look at us historically we were in deep deep doo-doo shall we say to use a biological term <laughs> we were de- you know we had assassinations Racial issues were, I mean, worse than they are today. I mean, really, today we're gaining some ground. Not enough, mind you, but it was really bad at that time. Politically very bad, financially bad. Uh, Our world uh, relationships were not good. And and domestically, well, it was not a good, good time in our lives. Of course, kids know this. They they understand this. They, you know, young people are extremely much more sensitive than the adult world gives them credit for. And especially this generation I grew up in, because they were the really first major media babies. So they got a, a, an uphand view of what was happening in the world, more so than their parents and their parents' parents. Right? Mm-hmm. And because they were all media babies, they knew what was going on. Yeah. And, it, and of course, that affects you. So here were these four guys in this stage that brought a release. They made us smile. God, we weren't smiling anymore. People were getting killed. There's assassinations, political strife, racial strife. So here are some four guys come over here with absolute, you know, almost nonsensical, silly, you know, silly attitudes, fooling around, great music, music that reflected the young people of the day, the poetry of the streets. And we needed this so desperately. And there they were, they were handed to us, right? 
by the music industry who wanted to make a lot of money. Let's not forget that. This, is not a gift. this wasn't a gift from God. Let me see. Um, were you there in 66 when the uh, Beatles came back to Shea? Or do you remember? You were, were you, did you see him in 66? Uh, uh, the Beatles. 65, 60. You know, I want to tell you something. At this time of my life, everything is getting mishmashed. Uh, okay. I'm glad I wrote a couple books so I can look it up. I'm Honestly, glad. I, I know you said, what, what day was it? A lot of people, I don't remember. It was a Tuesday. I don't know. <laughs> Every day is a Tuesday now. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, um, Bruce, how did your station handle the John's Jesus remark? Uh, very careful. Matter of fact, interesting. We had uh, two music meetings on that alone, because right away, uh, a couple of the guys wanted to go after John and really do a job on him. They they found they saw an opening to get some ink in yeah. those press, right? Yeah. Very wrong. Very, very foolish of them. So we had music meetings, emergency music meetings, and we were uh, told and we all agreed that we would handle this very quietly with respect and not uh, jump at John and say that this man is sacrilegious and he really is a devil, right? We handled it very carefully very carefully, either not say anything or do something gently to support John Lennon. Because very honestly, I, I really, to this day, believe most of it was taken out of context. Oh, sure. It really was. I mean, did he say it? You know, John Lennon was a very free thinker. He was brilliant, free thinker. And like I always say, he was not a, an angel and he was not a devil. He was a person. He was a poet, right? And a poet is a, a camera. He he identified life and he said what he wanted to say in his own poetic terms. So sometimes things would come out and it wasn't like you and I would say them because maybe you'd think twice because, you know, you'd get in trouble with your priest. But John Lennon didn't care about that. John Lennon cared about, I guess, honesty and what he felt was truth. I mean, he did get in a lot of trouble. He got in trouble with Nixon. He got, he got in a lot of trouble politically. I mean, yeah. he was a very free thinker. And I miss him. I'll tell you, I really miss him. I did not agree uh, with everything that he ever said. Uh, I admired his uh, poetry. I liked him as a person because I got along with him great. Right? I didn't agree with him politically a lot of times. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, an American first. So it, it's kind of tough when somebody gets up there and starts taking the flag and sort of mushes it around a little bit. So I uh, did not agree with a lot of the stuff that he did, but oh, we were told to handle it carefully. I absolutely agreed because I knew this was not fair. He was being burned. burned. Well, yeah. well, Brucey, there is a tape uh, from 66 where you're interviewing John. And I know you're not you know, going to politics a lot because uh, from what I know about you, you know, working with you and everything, uh, but he, you were sort of sending a message at the same time that I, I, uh, I understand what you said and I sort of agree with you, but at the same time, you didn't come out directly and say that, you know, in the interview that I, I've heard of you uh, interviewing John from 66 talking yes. about this, the situation. Well, you know, it, it was very shocking and I couldn't be, I couldn't be foolish enough to say that it wasn't a, a horrifying moment for a lot of people who uh, he, he, he heard the word Jesus Christ, Savior. I mean, uh, it, the, intim the, uh, the intimated that uh, the Beatles, that's, anyway, that's what the press came out with, that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. Now, that is absolutely ridiculous, ludicrous, 
He would never have said that. He right, did not right. mean it that way, right? What he right. did mean, as far as I'm concerned, is that the, this this group has so much to do with the id of people and the morality and the ethics of people that they probably had as a great effect, just like the Lord Jesus had. Now, that doesn't say that they were bigger than Jesus. He was, yeah, he was identifying it, which probably was wrong. I don't think that was a, a smart thing. And I, that's what I probably meant. I don't think it was wise for them to, to, to use them in the same sentence. Right. Well, well, that wasn't right. But I know what he meant. And he didn't mean any, any real harm. He right. affected a lot of people, though. And, of course, the people who were anti-rock and roll, the older generation, right, uh, they took this and ran with it. It's like today, you know, in politics, somebody says something, some conservative says something, the, uh, uh, a, uh, a liberal will go run with it, vice versa, a liberal says something. You know, this is the way we are. This is the way people are. We're made up like this. So any opening that you have, you run with it if you're against it. And yeah. it really wasn't fair. It was a, that was a tough moment. Tough moment. I, I think um, I would say probably from John's perspective, Bruce, there was probably a, as you said, you always got along well with John and there had to be a respect coming from John towards you, because even though, as you say, you know, we joke we're as broadcasters, we still we still avoid those seven dirty words. You can't say on radio and television. George Carlin would say, which words are those? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, say, I can give you say that in front of me. <laughs> I well, give you the initials. But uh, but I mean, you know, you you always and it was the and, and it's the difference in a way between uh, a big difference between you and and. Murray, there was always a sincerity from Cousin Brucey. There was always uh, an honesty and a sincerity. And I think there also has always been uh, this idea that it was the respect for John's right to have said it. You didn't agree with it, but it was that idea that as a broadcaster first and as someone who supports and upholds that we should be able to say. And I, I'm sure that that got a lot of respect from John. It did, it did, but he also knew that I did not agree with what he said. And, I, yeah. and he also knew I wish he hadn't said it. Yeah. Not that, that my my opinion didn't really matter. It was done. And, uh, you know, like he, he is who he is and he was who he was, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, that's still a very sad, very, very sore point in my life from how we lost him. Um, it, it was a wrong move. But listen, we all say things we don't mean. You know, right. I, to this day, when I'm on the radio, I learned a long time ago to be honest and to talk directly to people. And that's what I do. Like, I'm talking to you right now. Yeah. Uh, this is easy because I'm talking to human beings. And I'm talking to people who are really absorbing and, and giving me things. Uh, but that's how I feel when I'm on the radio. I see my audience. I feel my audience. And they deserve respect. They're not an audience. They are friends. They're out there and they're listening. And they're letting me in their beds with them. I'm taking baths with people. I just hope <laughs> they give me a towel. That's all. <laughs> so I respect, I respect that. Brucey, I, I want to go back to 1964 because we skipped it, but I wanted to get to it. And the only reason I, I still want to mention it is because when you interviewed Ringo a few years ago, he still remembered it. And I want to talk about when um, Ringo had lost his St. Christopher medal Angie McGowan, who is a, a fan of WABC, and of course the Beatles found it, and then you gave it back the next day to Ringo. Though the story of how you put her and her mother up in a hotel just so you can drag this out for like a day was—it's something that maybe wouldn't be looked <laughs> on positively today. 
But back then, it was a very touching moment. So I, can you explain that story for those who don't know the no, story? I, I wish, Rob, I can say that it was done for altruistic uh, reasons. <laughs> and that it was a touching moment. It, it did, because everything you do has two sides to it. There's a sharp side and a, a little more you know, dull side, a little fuzzy side. So this had both. This had sharp and fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> when the boys came up, we were at the uh, Warwick Hotel, and I was being held out of a window on the eighth floor by literally the seat of my pants and my belt buckle, my belt by Rick Sklar, who was the program director of them. Uh, I was describing what was happening below. Now, there was another scene, which maybe we can leave for part two of this podcast. There's a great story about how a, a make-believe Beatles group called the Teddy Bears, Teddy Boys, came up on one-way street making believe they were the Beatles in a limo. <laughs> but let's keep that for another day. That's a great story, by the way. Yes. The fun You're story. on. And, and, and the, what was happening in the Warwick Hotel, it was crazy. Another story. Uh, so I'm, I'm watching what's going on there. Now, you got to understand, the noise was unbelievable. And we're broadcasting live, which we had the facilities to do. We didn't have wireless mics. Everything was wired. And my uh, technology, I was being held by my pants seat to my belt out the window. That's our technology. No this drones. Happening below. There was thousands of thousands of kids across the street at the uh, at the um, Hilton Hotel. Right. Police barricades were set up. Cops on horses were all over the place. And the Beatles finally arrived. Well, they get out of their car and all hell breaks loose. If you, you've got to picture this watching out this window, it looked like a rose, a, a, a flower petal opening. That's the crowd pushing over just a flower suddenly open and everything came out. The horses came down, the wooden horses, the bigger, the regular horses were pushed out of the way. Police had absolutely no control. And the kids were right at the war. They were flooding that street. It was all over the place. Uh, there's flower pots. I'll never forget this. Right below us at the Warwick, at the entrance, they must weigh several hundred pounds. Those flower pots were moved by this by this huge crowd, the power of the crowd, like they were paperweights, right? Mm. Well, uh, the boys get out of the car. And what the girls used to do all the time, and mostly girls, mostly well, young women, they would grab at clothing, hope to get a piece of a shirt, a collar, this. They grab hair. Right. They grab necks. They grab anything they can. I've been grabbed many times again. You wouldn't believe it. Right. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, another story. So, so part two. Uh, I didn't know, you know, but the, the guys get in and they get up to their suite or whatever it is. And uh, we are broadcasting with, you know, doing all different kind of things, and you know, giving all kinds of Beatles stories. And uh, I, I was told that the Beatles are on their way down uh, that, uh, that um, Paul, Paul was coming down and Ringo was coming down. And John would join them later, and so would George. Well, Ringo gets to me while I'm on the air, and I say something. I was very nervous. I'm not going to lie. I was, you know, scared. I was very young, Cousin Brucey, and he was the, the break of a lifetime, having the Beatles live on the air in WA Beatles C, right? And he, he looks at me and he says, Brucey. And I said, Ringo, exactly. This is what I said almost verbatim. I don't like the way you look. That was stupid to say. I mean, I don't know why I said that, but he did look very nervous and scared. And he says, well, I'm a little upset. I lost me St. Christopher's medal that my auntie, whatever her name was, gave me. And then I said something. I was so nervous, right? I said, was it really valuable? Was it gold? This is on tape, so I, it's almost <laughs> a bit. 
it was a real golden. And he says, looks at me, and he says, and I deserve this, because I only wear real gold. <laughs> All right, anyway, I think we had nothing to story. So he lost the St. Christmas medal, and he was very upset. Well, you know, being a broadcaster and being a, a Brooklyn kid and uh, being very involved with the Beatles, the head started going. Bong, bong, bong. The cash register started going. I knew what was going to happen. And I knew there's a story here. And I said, Ringo, let me ask you a question. If we can find the St. Christopher's medal, if I can find them in his voice, because I know every kid in that audience listening downstairs or wherever they were, on the floor somewhere, right? Hiding in the Warwick Hotel, in the laundry bins. That's how literally these people were. Literally great stories, kids in laundry bins. All right, waiting to get off of the floor. I knew they all were listening. And I said, Ringo, if we can find that St. Christopher's medal that your auntie gave you, would you give him a hug and maybe a kiss and see them? He said, yes, absolutely. And you heard, so I said, cousins, you heard him. I knew right away what was going to happen. I knew it was it, right? Whoever found, not took, not borrowed, not stole, whoever found the St. Christopher's medal, I want you to call this number now. Okay? Gave a number. Well, sure enough, before I got off the air, a Mrs. McGowan from the Bronx, I believe, was on the phone. Mrs. McGowan was Angie McGowan's mom. I was 15 at the time. Well, right. I still hear from once in a while. Wow. Yeah, I we still keep keep in touch once in a while. She'll write to me. I'm sure she listens to what I'm doing now because she knows I tell her story all the time. <laughs> and she said, is my daughter in trouble, Cousin Bruce? I said, no. Uh, obviously, she's not. She might think she's going to be a big hero. Did she find the St. Christopher's Medal. She said, yes, she found it. I said, this is what I want you to do. I want my brain went so fast. I've never had such alertness in my life. I think I probably used half of my brain cells up in this thing. Right. <laughs> Not that I had that many to begin with. But anyway, so I said, I want you to go to the uh, Hilton hotel. I'm going to put you up in a suite with your daughter. She can bring a couple friends. And then at so-and-so, I'm going to have you picked up and brought here to our studio where she's going to meet Ringo and return the found St. Christmas medal. Okay. Well, by this time, guys, every news media in the world was involved with this. I mean, we could not, if I had Madison Square Garden, we couldn't hold the camera crews. I mean, there was no way. So we had to elect who we wanted to come up to this thing. There's great footage of this stuff. Of course, we repaid all of the local media, yeah. television people who were so good to me and so good to WA Beatles. And the appointed hour came. And there comes Angie McGowan with a friend or two friends. Uh, Mom was there. I was there. I think Scott was there. And a couple of our WABC uh, executives, nervous as hell because they didn't know what was going to happen. The media was there. And Ringo walks in the room. And the rest is there, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's actually a video of it, too, because yeah. it was on ABC television, too. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. So, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you what you did with the other 3,000 gold medals that were found. There's <laughs> 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 a big set of Chris, St. Christopher's medals. There's something with press coverage and. I don't have to tell you what happened with me. Yeah, I mean, right. WABC. It was a it was a phenomenal 
a public relations event that just was handed. It was not planned. And that's what's nice. When things like that, which is rare, happens, right, and not planned, not phony, not ersatz, it really is nice. It shows that there really is something going on nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, and there was something that I thought was funny about that in, in the, watching the video last night. Um, you're interviewing uh, Ringo, and he says, Ringo, uh, Ringo says he likes New York City. And Scott Muni turns to the camera and says, Ringo Starr just said he likes New York City. <laughs> I just, it just seemed like you no, he didn't wasn't. do that. Bruce, you didn't do that. You mentioned the call letters all the time, but you didn't, you didn't turn to the camera to, to make it an obvious statement that Ringo had just said. So. Yeah, that's funny. No, he would, because he would be sarcastic too. He said, yeah, uh, you know, he, he would not give the answer that we wanted. So we right. had to make our own. Right. Well, Bruce, we're running out of time. I have. I, I have one more question. The other guys might have another question. One of the things I was going through with some of the promos for the station, and we're all collectors, and I've never seen this. WABC had something called the Beatle Book, which had like 80 pages of pictures and facts about the Beatles. I have never seen this anywhere. But the promo says you send in a dollar, you would get it. I, I, I assume a lot of people bought it, so... Why don't I find any? Why don't I find one when I go looking for things to collect? Well, and Rob, does Cousin Brucey have one that maybe he might want to give to his friend Rob? Rob, let me tell you something. I did have one. Unfortunately, uh, when I was married, uh, the first time, a lot of my stuff, a lot of my memorabilia was let go. Uh, oh, wow. Because she thought, unfortunately, thought it was not, it was junk. And that was part of it. I oh, lost. Wow. I lost that along with a lot of other good stuff. Listen, guys, uh, I hate to do this. I'm really, I'm having a great time. But why don't we think about this? Why don't we do pods two? Absolutely, Absolutely. we would That's love definite. it. We'd definite. love that person. So now we have to do yeah. that because okay. I know you want me to do. You want you want to do some things here. Yeah. I have to, Make way for my my beautiful Jody. Mm-hmm. My Absolutely. Jody. You know that's what we do today. We go to the pharmacy, the supermarket, and we do pods. <laughs> that's it. Well, I'm actually going to do the other two in a few minutes. Oh. Well, first of all, Brucey, thank you for giving us a part two. We didn't expect that, so yep, thank you for that. Thank you for this too. No, it's too much. You know, I, I really respect this history. I respect that you are trying to. Uh, it is solidified and marbleize it. And uh, oh, I yeah. want this to be around for a long time. We and respect it, you. It, there's not too many people that were there in person with them, you know, left. So you, you, you're, you're first, your first uh, observer, really. First I mean, you, 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 you still remember ready. it all, which is great. I, mean, I walked into it. I really did. A, it's like Palisades Park. You know, I've been very, my career has been wonderful. It continues. And uh, I love what I do every night on the air. Yeah. Well, we yep. appreciate it, Bruce. So you, uh, exactly. You've been listening to the Fab Four Free For All or watching us either way. I am your moderator for today, Rob Leonard, and joining me has been Mitch Axelrod. Take care, folks. And Tony Truguardo. Take care, and everyone. We say special thanks to our guest, Bruce Morrow, cousin Brucey. And as you heard, everyone, we will have a part two. <laughs> so thank you, Brucey, and uh, we look forward to part two. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. 
Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All. We just got a nice uh, note here. Mitch Axelrod. Now, this is the guy that wrote that great book. Uh, it's a wonderful new book, Beetle Tunes, the real story behind the B cartoon Beatles. We're going to give away another copy of that, plus the CD, uh, uh, Hard Day's Night, a little bit uh, later on. Sorry, it's Yellow Summary, a little next uh, hour of the show. But Mitch Axelrod, the author, celebrating his 38th birthday now. So happy birthday, Mitch. And I uh, want to give him a little present here. I want to remind everybody that Mitch is going to be over there at uh, Borders Books at 461 Park Avenue in Manhattan to sign his new book. It'll show films about the Beatles and cartoons on Thursday, February the 10th, 6 o'clock. Go and meet Mitch and uh, get a hold of his book. Really fun. Maybe you win one next uh, hour. Cousin Breezy, let's see. We have more dedications for you and uh, all the best music. Stand by for more Beatles.